This week, understanding spider sense. The vibration sensor of the spider combines a number of really exquisite properties. And how many species are really threatened with extinction? We've increased the natural rate of extinction by at least 10 times, maybe more. Plus the ins and outs of cell reprogramming. This is The Nature Podcast for December the 11th, 2014. I'm Jeff Marsh. And I'm Kerry Smith. Engineers have often been inspired by the natural world. And it's no surprise, nature's got about four and a half billion years on us at problem solving. But a lot of nature's most intricate work is done at the nanoscale, working with molecules smaller than the wavelength of light. And of course, you can't copy what you can't see. Scientists, however, are getting better at seeing and building things on the nanoscale, and that means that they can plunder evolution's intellectual copyright more often. This next story is a lovely example of that. The wandering spider has a vibration sensor called a liriform organ on the hard exoskeleton of its feet. A team in South Korea led by Mansu Che of Seoul National University have tried to mimic it and build their own highly sensitive sensor. They then used it to pick up tiny vibrations. It's so sensitive, it's able to pick up the flapping of a ladybird's wings. To start off with, here's a bit of context about the spider itself from Peter Fratzel, a scientist from the Max Planck Institute for Colloids and Interfaces in Germany. He's also written about the new work. So the wandering spider sitting on a banana leaf somewhere in South America is able to sense the vibrations of that leaf, which are created by a potential mate several meters away, scraping this leaf with the mouth or the abdomen in order to sense these very, very small vibration on top of what the wind is doing and all the other noises that there are in the jungle, it needs a very, very specific and sensitive vibration sensor. It's called a liriform vibration sensor because the arrangement of slits in this cuticle of the spider are like the strings in a lira. Now, very briefly, what is it about having a hard surface covered in lots of minute little cracks that allows these animals or these instruments to amplify these minute signals? You have to imagine that the vibration that is coming from the banana leaf is gradually increasing and decreasing the elongation of the legs, tiny, tiny amounts. So there is a need to concentrate this elongation in a very, very small spot in order to be able to sense it. And the idea there is to use a tiling of the surface. So just imagine tiles in your bathroom. If you try to stretch, it will not change its length very much because it's so stiff. What is able to change the length is the interstice uh, between the tiles. So if you have a very, very tiny interstice and you're changing the overall length of a big object by, say, 2%, if the interstice is 100 times smaller than the object, the length of the interstice will take up all the elongation and change not 2%, but 200%. So this is geometric amplification, basically, of this signal into the tiny spot of this uh, slit. So the minute stretching and squashing of the hard surface caused by vibrations is concentrated at these gaps. And this concept of geometric amplification was adopted by Mansu Che in the building of his sensor. Here he is. So in order to mimic stiff exoskeleton, we use 20 nanometer high-conductive platinum film on top of flexible polymer. And we wrapped 
those films around glass rot, then you can generate cracks. Let me just see if I've got this right. You feed an electrical current across the surface of your sensor, and as these tiny gaps are minutely stretched and compressed, you measure the changes in electrical resistance. Right, right. External vibration or external force can affect the contact area of nanoscale cracks. When we flow current, we can measure resistance variation. Then you can measure the external vibration or external force variation. So you tested the device's sensitivity to strain and mechanical vibration. Then I believe you had a bit of fun testing it out on sound waves. What else did you stick your sensor on? We also tried to measure vibrations while violin is playing, and then we can extract spectrogram from our electrical signal variation in time while our friend is playing. What did your friend play on the violin? Um. Elgas Salutamor, la 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 la. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I suppose if it works for music, then presumably it would register human speech. We also attached our flexible sensor on the neck to check whether we can screen speech patterns, and we found that the accuracy level is very high in noisy environment. So it can sense music and speech, but actually the most important use of this sensor you mentioned in your paper will be as a highly sensitive strain sensor, for example. Right, right. And also they can be applied to some safety items. If you worry about some cracks, then you immediately detect, or you could apply it to some very precision manufacturing system to monitor distance variation very, very accurately. Both Mansu and Peter warn me, however, that despite achieving incredible vibration sensing capabilities, the analogy with the spider's sophisticated liriform organ is only partial, leaving plenty of room for improvement. The vibration sensor of the spider combines a number of really exquisite properties. It is extremely sensitive, but it's also extremely discriminatory in the sense that it is able to distinguish different frequencies. Of vibration, the nerve cell is only firing when the right combinations of signals is arriving at the same time at the spider. Because this liriform sensor is a combination of several frequency-dependent sensor in one object, and the spider is only going to feel the signal means that the nerve is being firing when it's the right signal. So there's a lot of room to improve. On what we are doing technically, before we can even compare to what the spider sensor is actually capable of. We ended there with Peter Fratzel, and before him, you heard Mansu Che. Coming up, turns out it's pretty tricky to estimate how many species we're losing each year to extinction, and how can we conserve what we can't estimate? First, though, it's the research highlights. Here's Noah Baker. The electric eel stuns its fish prey by remote controlling its nervous system. The eel's zaps cause muscles throughout the fish's body to contract and twitch. Eels use shocks for searching too. In a test, when a fish was hidden, the eel sent out two quick pulses, causing the fish to twitch and reveal its location. Then they zoomed in and zapped their dinner with a high-voltage strike. 
The only way to prevent eel attack was to shield the prey with plastic or stop it from twitching by using frozen fish. Find the result in science. Your smartphone could become a chemical detector with just a couple of tweaks. Half a billion smartphones worldwide carry circuits that help them communicate wirelessly at short range, used for things like contactless payment. A team from MIT connected chemically sensitive materials into the circuitry of a Samsung Galaxy, such that if a particular chemical was present near the phone, the circuit would activate. Different materials could sense different chemicals, and the team managed to detect ammonia, hydrogen peroxide and components of explosives, even in small quantities. PNAS has that paper. Clark's banana frog. Madeiran land snail. Leopard fringe fingered lizard. Short fin sand stargazer. Karchi Andes toad. Hairy nosed otter. Galapagos barnacle blenny. Golden dancing jeweled damselfly. Cloud copper butterfly. Green poison frog. Mustached wood creeper. Andros bright bush creeper. All of these species are at risk of extinction. It would take a whole day to read out that list. But these are just the species which we know for sure are in trouble. They're the ones that have been assessed by the extinction-watching body, the IUCN. The fact is, the IUCN have only assessed a tiny fraction of life on Earth. And the full list is likely to take months to read out, rather than a day. There could be 500 species going extinct a year. There could be over 30,000. Estimates really vary. We don't even know how many species there are in total. 2 million? As many as 30 million? Richard Monastersky has tried to wrangle the numbers in a feature this week, and Noah Baker caught up with him, starting by asking what makes pinning down the worldwide extinction rate so hard. Many of them are located in areas where they don't have a huge range. They're, they're very local species, um, so they're tough to find, and many of them are threatened, so there aren't that many of them left. That makes it very difficult to know how many species there are, and if we don't know how many species there are, it's very hard to know how many are going extinct. How many species are threatened then? How much do we know about that? That's a difficult question to answer, too. The International Union for Conservation of Nature has been assessing species for the last few decades, and they've done a really good job of assessing groups like mammals and birds and amphibians. But for other groups, they haven't yet assessed most of the species there. So let's take a few examples. For mammals, there are about 5,500 species of mammals. There may be a few out there that haven't been described yet, but of the ones that have been described so far, they've all been assessed, and about a quarter of them are deemed at risk of extinction. For fish, it's a different story. There are about 32,000 species of fish, and only about a third of them have been assessed so far. And with that fraction assessed, it's hard to know how many are really threatened. For insects, the situation is even worse. 0.5% have been assessed so far. So we really don't have any idea about how many insects are threatened. So we don't necessarily know that much about extinction, but it doesn't sound like a, a good story, whatever way you slice it. No, that's true. We don't have a very good prognosis for life on Earth at the moment. Probably hundreds of species are going extinct each year, and we know that the threats are growing. We're chopping down forests. 
Um, we're hunting and fishing at rates that are increasing. We're introducing invasive species from one continent, one region to another. Add to that the threat of climate change, which is going to increase in the future, and the picture doesn't look good for, for many animals and plants. But extinction is something that happens naturally. I mean, you mentioned habitat destruction and so on. How much of this is really a human cause? Extinction is a natural process. But we think that we've increased the natural rate of extinction by at least 10 times, maybe more. That sounds to some as, you know, like a really horrible stat, but does it, does it really matter? I mean, how much of a problem are these extinctions? That's a really philosophical question. What is a species worth? From a purely monetary standpoint, some species are worth a huge amount because they might provide a cancer drug or they might provide some sort of service that human societies depend on. Aside from that, ecology is a very complex thing. Species interact with each other. Plants and animals depend on each other. And if you take out one part of that puzzle, one part of that matrix, then many other parts can rearrange themselves. But we don't know what an ecosystem will look like if we remove species. And it may not be the kind of ecosystems that we as humans would want. If we don't really understand just how many species there are or how many species are going extinct, what does that mean for conservation efforts in the future? How do we move forward? One way to move forward is to increase the number of species that are being assessed. And the IUCN has a goal of doubling the number of assessments by 2020. And they think that they, if they do that, they can get a a good representation of the important species out there. It'll still be a very small fraction of the species that exist, but it will be a broad representative of the important species. Now that's just assessing what's there. In terms of protecting, we have a lot more to do. Those require huge investments, but the payback is deemed to be even more lucrative. In other words, if you make those investments in ecosystems, societies should reap more benefits. So there are things we can do, but is this all a little bit too little too late? Are we past a point yet? I don't think so. Um, and, and from what I've gathered from talking to researchers, nobody feels we're past the point in terms of habitat and in terms of biodiversity. Um, there's a lot that can be done, and a lot is being done now. It's just up to the nations of the world to increase their activities to protect more species, to protect more habitat. Noah Baker was talking to Rich Monastersky. The IUCN list of threatened species is at iucnredlist.org. News editor Davide Castelvecchi will be in the hot seat for the news chat in just a mo. But first, Kerry's been willing herself younger with the help of a bundle of new papers on reprogramming cells to a more youthful state. Yes, exactly. Well, it is almost my birthday and one gets to thinking about one's advancing age. It's well known that cells can be reprogrammed, that you can take a skin cell and turn the clock back so it becomes a pluripotent cell with the ability to turn into a number of different cell types. A clutch of papers in Nature and Nature Communications pick apart the transformation, which is still pretty mysterious. Meanwhile, our reporter David Sirinowski has been looking at the reprogramming recipe to see what crucial instructions are still missing. 
Welcome to the Nature Podcast Cookery School. Today's topic, cell reprogramming. We're going to try and reprogram some cells back to a pluripotent state. And joining us to tell us how to do it is chef to the stars, David Cyrinowski. Hi, David. Hello, hello. How are you? <laughs> Good, thanks. Uh, thank you for joining us on, on the cookery show today. Uh, the first thing we're going to need to do is outline a few of the ingredients uh, that one might need if one wants to reprogram some cells. There are four main ingredients. It's uh, oct, uh, sox, cmic, and KLF. These are proteins that um, Sunya Yamanaka discovered uh, in 2006 could reprogram the cells. And what kind of cells do we also need as our base material normally? You can presumably use any kind of cells, but uh, the ones they often use are fibroblasts, which are connective tissue cells that are easy to get from the skin. So take us through this very simple recipe then. What do I do once I've got my, my skin cells, my fibroblasts and all my factors ready? Well, you have to get them into the cells somehow. There are now a variety of ways of doing this. Shinya Yamanaka originally used uh, viral vectors to get them into the cells, and then the viruses introduced the DNA. Once the proteins were expressed, they can go and uh, start latching onto the chromosomes and, and making various changes. This is the bit of the process that starts to be a little bit uh, hand-wavy, doesn't it? How you get the cells, once you've got the stuff in there, uh, what exactly happens to the cells to kind of kick them out of their skin cell state and back into this pluripotent state? Quite a bit of it is a mystery. One of the things that happens is that these four factors uh, latch onto the chromosomes in places that we wouldn't expect them to. So when they uh, put them into the cells, they thought that they would probably latch onto the places in the chromosome where they would help to express genes related to pluripotency. But in fact, what happens is they go to different areas of the chromosomes. You're looking at chemical reactions that you don't really know uh, how they're how they're working, how they're producing what you want, and in in the same way that when most of us are cooking, we don't really know what's what's happening, but um, we hopefully like what we get out at the end. That's a good point, isn't it? Because the, the the chemical knowledge isn't necessary to bake a cake, and likewise, scientists can reprogram cells with reasonable efficiency levels now, and and yet nobody knows what's going on. I mean, what what's what's the big deal with knowing how this stuff works? I asked a lot of the scientists about that, why, why they care, because they can make, uh, you know, the fibroblasts, the skin cells are uh, plentiful and the, the factors, there's no problem getting the, the ingredients. So why not just stick with the recipe you have? But a lot of them are driven just to know better what happens here. Uh, it's almost a philosophical question. But for others, it's also a very practical thing. They know that the better you understand a process, the more likely you are to be able to tweak it, to use it in scientific research or to use it in the clinic. And of course, regulators always want to know exactly what you're presenting them to put into a human body. Okay, thanks, David. Sit tight as I'm now going across to Andras Neugi, who's part of a team publishing a raft of papers that pick apart what's going on in reprogramming. There's only one way to understand the process properly, Neugi thought, and that's to collect a ton of data. It was so much work that they called their task Project Grandiose. It's at least 50 people, uh, four continents uh, and uh, uh, four countries were involved uh, for four years. It's the first high-resolution characterization of the reprogramming process. And uh, it was, in fact, the first uh, such a kind of thing that... Uh, we are characterizing a process, not a 
state, but a process where things are moving ahead. To do that, they collected 100 million cells every day for a month and looked at their proteins and gene expression. In some cell lines, they introduced the reprogramming factors and dialed down the levels later, as the normal recipe states. But in others, they changed the recipe and just kept adding the factors. And this led to a big finding. And this led to the big finding of these papers. These cells turned into a new type of pluripotent cell, dubbed F-class cells. That's one of the exciting things about these papers that you're publishing, that uh, we found and characterized the new stage of pluripotency, which uh, likely earlier was not recognized or totally ignored. Uh, and it has features which might be even uh, advantages compared to the embryonic stem cell like iPS cells, for example, they grow faster, which uh, will help to expand the cells uh, much more easily and more uh, economically. These new F-class cells are a little different from other pluripotent cells. They stick together less than other cells do, and when they do, the edges of their clumps are kind of fuzzy looking, hence F-class. This has been one hell of a year for pluripotent cells, so I have one more question for David. January this year, the STAP papers were published. Later in the year, questions emerged, they were retracted. No one's been able to replicate those findings. It's been an interesting year for reprogrammed cells, hasn't it? Of course, the scientists who were involved in the STAP were were affected by it. But I think, especially because it was dealt with so quickly, that was, you know the papers were published in, in January, they were discredited by June and, and retracted in, in July. So... In, in a sense, that was a very good thing. It was easy to move beyond it. There are some other good news in the in the fact that cells derived from iPS cells were put into humans for the first time this year, and that was in September. That was actually by a researcher at the same institute as the, as the stat papers. So I, I think it, it was as as tragic as it was. It was somewhat easy to get behind, and I don't think scientists are going to shy away from this field at all. David Cyrinowski and before him, researcher Andras Neugi, who's at the University of Toronto and Mount Sinai Hospital, also in Toronto. Well, as promised, it's time now for the news chat and joining me is Davide Kasselvecki. Hi, Davide. Hello. Now, I'm sure the news site is brimming with great stories as usual. What have you picked for us this week? We have a story in, in the magazine, in fact, this week on a new plan from the European science ministers to fund a moon landing mission, piggybacking on a a Russian mission that is scheduled for 2019. Why do we have to piggyback on a Russian mission? Uh, So the the European Space Agency had hoped to uh, run its own mission uh, to the moon. Um, But in 2012, the science ministers shot that down. There wasn't enough support for it. And it's nothing new um, to see nations collaborating in terms of space science. What are they going to do when they get to the moon? What's the mission for? The idea is to explore the south pole of the moon. Uh, At least that's something that has been uh, uh, exciting scientists and space uh, researchers for a while. There's the thought that uh, because there's supposed to be some uh, water ice that could be a good site for a future permanent base on the moon. And there's also some science, a lot, of, a lot of science, in fact, that one could do on the lunar surface. There are also plans for a, a sample return mission that could lift off, land on the moon, collect samples, lift off and bring them back. 
And is this a surprising collaboration given the current political climate? Yes, in fact, um, there has been a significant cooling of relations between Russia and the West. Um, Russia, of course, has been a very important partner in the International Space Station, which also sees participation from the United States, Canada, and Europe, and Japan. But after Russia annexed Crimea earlier this year, and there's also tensions over the rest of uh, eastern Ukraine, uh, there's been sanctions imposed from the West, And in fact, Russia has also announced that it was going to sever ties uh, with the West over the International Space Station and stop uh, in 2020 ferrying astronauts back and forth to the to the ISS. And this collaborative mission to the moon might happen despite those tensions. Yes, um, this is this is presumably what uh, Europe has in mind. It's uh, the details are not clear yet, but the, the only plan that is on the table at this point for, for Europe to go to the moon would be to piggyback on the Russians. Now, are these plans sort of set in stone, or is this just the ministers sketching out what they'd like to think about doing in the coming years? No. At this stage, uh, basically all that happened was that the, the European science ministers have given green light to ESA to explore this possibility. There, has, there isn't I mean, there's no mission that has been funded. Okay, and uh, for the second story this week, we're coming straight back down to Earth to a story about tsunami early warning systems. Yes, it's been 10 years since the horrific earthquake and tsunami of 2004, the day after Christmas of 2004. And uh, since then, countries that are around the Indian Ocean have made a lot of progress towards establishing a network of sensors and a network of early warning to prevent such consequences should another tsunami like that happen. So what what kind of precautions have they put in place? How does this system work? The idea is to have uh, seismometers and buoys. Buoys like the floating balloons on the water. Yes, exactly. So there would be um, this network of sensors uh, that would uh, signal when a big earthquake happens and when a tsunami wave is on its way, and based on that information and based on what they know about the geography of the region, experts would then be able to warn governments whether or not there's going to be a, a tsunami heading for their coasts. So now we're in a situation where the authorities get this message that there's a tsunami coming nice and early, uh, but that's not the final step in warning the people on the ground, is it? Yes, exactly. So there's still the problem of the the so-called last mile, because even once a government has been warned, uh, it's not necessarily easy for them to uh, notify their residents uh, that they should get away from the coasts, or at least from the beaches, and get to shelters, and so on. How do you tell those people? Well, a lot of it is preparedness, uh, understanding how a wave will impact a particular place. And that depends a lot on, on, on the topography and undersea topography of the region. Part of it is uh, just physically getting the message out and also sort of educating people. For example, there, there was an earthquake in 2012 uh, off the coast of Sumatra and the signal, the, 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 the alarm was sent out, but people, instead of going to shelters, they got into their cars and started heading for higher ground. And of course, the first thing that happens in that case is a whole huge traffic jam. Whose problem is this? Because the Indian Ocean covers, you know, a whole lot of different countries, doesn't it? 
a lot of it has to happen at, at, at the local level. So uh, countries such as Indonesia are working on on devising local preparedness plans and educating uh, citizens. Um, at the at the international level, it's mostly a matter of of uh, how are we going to now keep funding this huge network um, because now that the the donors' money that has uh, rained on the on the organization after the the huge tsunami of 2004 now that it has that has dried up the uh, the issue will be how to continue funding this this organization okay thanks davide anything else uh, of note from the news site that you'd like to tell us about yes i also would like to uh, let people know that uh, our reporter erica check hayden is on the ground in sierra leone and she's reporting almost daily about the 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 front of the fight against Ebola so you can you can find her diary on our website nature.com/news okay thanks davide and just in case you missed that url read all those stories and more at nature.com/news join us again next week for the last show of the year there'll be a look back on 2014 and some holiday sciencey silliness as i'm sure you've come to expect i'm jeff marsh and i'm kerry smith 